Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Richard Vetter, the author of, among other books, Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be with you, Eric. So uh, Richard, by way of introduction, what, why don't you talk about why you, uh, why you wrote this book? Uh, this was this a few years ago, uh, and then we'll get into you know, some of the main claims that the book, the book makes. Yeah, uh, well, I've been teaching forever. I, I mean, literally forever. I started teaching in the mid 60s. So I have, I just finished my 56th year of teaching, or I'm in the middle of my 56th year of college teaching. So I've been around the block a few times. I've seen colleges and universities in a wide variety of situations and in different geographic areas, particularly in the US, of course. And uh, I, I've noticed. Uh, you know, changes uh, that I think are uh, concerning about higher ed. It's become, of course, more very expensive, uh, much more so than before. It's highly inefficient. It uh, There's issues about whether students are learning anything. Uh, there are uh, issues about whether people can express themselves fully uh, and freely uh, whether it, higher ed is really the marketplace of ideas that it used to be. There's a mismatch between what the students learn or are perceived to have learned and what markets, labor markets, want in the way of skills, maybe. I think there is some evidence of that. So there's a whole variety of problems with respect to higher ed that have grown over time. And they're important. And I, having been around the, the field for 55 or 60 years, I think I have some perspective on it that may be unique and different. So I wrote a book uh, about 20 years ago. I wrote my first book on this a book called Going Broke by Degree, which I did for the American Enterprise Institute in, Was- in Washington. And uh, I wrote that sort of uh almost as a lark, almost, I figured, what the heck, I've been in higher ed for a long time, I ought to be able to write about it, and that led to a lot of other things, I was appointed to a presidential commission on the future of higher ed, the Spellings Commission, I started a think tank, I did my college rankings for Forbes magazine, Uh, I started them, and did them for years, so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things, and I figure this is an area I know a little bit about. Maybe I ought to write about it. Yeah. The book is really expansive. I mean, some of the, the main things, you know, points or critiques I see you making and then, you know, diving in detail in the book are, and you alluded to them a little bit, you know, one is it's too expensive and, and it's rising, you know, too much student debt also rising, you know, too many students dropping out, you know, too many people going to school, you know, and, and not, not completing, too, too many students underemployed. Uh, you know, there's there's credential inflation that happens. <laughs> um, there's, uh, you know, basically cartel, um, oligopolistic market dynamics that prevent competition. And then there's just this, you know, misaligned incentives in the sense that the user is not the buyer or, you know, sort of like healthcare, we seem to be, you know, abstracting away responsibility or skin in the game on every uh, on every level. That doesn't seem so hopeful, huh? Did I? <laughs> did I? Yeah, you, 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 Eric, you just rewrote my book for me or updated <laughs> it. Uh, very nicely uh, summarized. And, you know, and there are a lot of sub issues that, you know, you can get into. Uh, for example, intercollegiate athletics is <laughs> unique in the United States. Nowhere else in the world do colleges have sporting teams in the same way we do? And there's special problems associated with that. We have buildings that sit empty five, six months of the year. Of course, during the COVID-19 uh, crisis, even more than that, 
that 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 even when we're in normal times, the buildings are empty half the time. Enormous waste of phys- of capital resources. Uh, so so we have all sorts of problems in higher ed beyond the ones the big ones that you mentioned. Uh, and uh, that's so that's why I wrote a book about it. Yeah, I want to get into sort of how we got here on, on, on some of these levels. When you talk about when we you've been again, you've been in the field for over 50 years. What do you think have been the biggest contributing factors to, to some of these? Uh, and you go into them in the book. But what, why don't you sort of talk about the big like turning points or the big shifts for for how we got here? Sure. Well, higher ed began in 1636 in the United States. And for the first 150 years, it was pretty much a private activity. In fact, I would say really first 200 years, uh, we started getting our first state universities really in, in a large number in the 19th centuries, in the 20th century. The federal government was pretty much totally uninvolved with higher ed at all until about 19, till World War II and the GI Bill. Uh, we had uh, provided uh, scholarship support for soldiers. Uh, that sort of began, and that was, but that was like, you know, 300 years into the history of the United States. As the government involvement has grown, uh, the, the amount of resources devoted to higher ed has been increased, and uh, it has become increasingly uh, taught to people uh, by uh, guidance counselors, by teachers, by politicians, that you won't succeed in life unless you have uh, a, a lot of education, a higher education, a degree. That idea was not prevalent really in America much uh, before World War II. And uh, even in 1970, only one out of every 10 adults had a college degree. And uh, so things have changed. Uh, And I don't want to blame everything on the government, but the governmental involvement has changed the dynamics. And it's led to more people getting educated. But it's also led to a lot of these problems that uh, uh, we're mentioning. Uh, The biggest single, if I had to pick one thing that's happened in the last uh, half century or so that has really changed the dynamics a lot, it's the student financial aid programs of the federal government, or the student loans especially. And that has really not worked out the way uh, people intended it to when it was created half century ago. Totally is had totally unintended uh, consequence. There have been unintended consequences of a huge magnitude. And I think uh, that program has been uh, less than successful. And, and, And I spent a lot of time in the book, of course, talking about that. To, to unpack what the intentions were and, and what, what ended up happening as a result or, or where it went wrong? Yeah, the program started on a big scale with, a, well, with the Higher Education Act of 1965. We had a great society, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, after the death of Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson comes in and he, 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 he proclaims we're going to have a great society. And part of that is... A, a big significant increase in government's governmental role in a variety of things, medical care, of course, Medicaid, Medicare, but also in higher ed. The Higher Ed Act of 1965 is the biggest part of that. And it was felt that we really need to have it, make it more accessible for lower income people to go to college, an admirable enough goal. It was argued that we don't have perfect uh, capital markets or financial markets uh, existing and low-income people have trouble get, getting the resources to go to college. So the government will uh, provide uh, lending uh, assistance to them, low-interest loans. Uh, the idea sounds pretty good. And I think in some ways it, it worked pretty well for the first decade or so. But as the program grew, uh, Congress enormously expanded the scope of it, particularly in 1978. 
and so that you could borrow money not just uh, if you were a low-income person, but if you were a middle-income person or even an above-middle-income person. And right now, the people who have federal student loans, uh, a, a lot of them are pretty well off. In fact, the average income of people with student loan debt today uh, among the adults who are actually out in the workforce is pretty high. A lot of them, of course, are owing money on graduate studies, including medical school or law school, and they have $150,000 debts, but they also have dollars $200,000 incomes in some cases. So uh, we're reaching out not just to the, you know, the poor, and the, uh, the the people who have trouble scraping up enough money to go to any kind of college, but we're, we've reached out to a much bigger audience. And colleges just saw this. They said, ha, people, we can meet our budgets. We'll just raise our tuition fees. And a guy named Bill Bennett, he's still alive, former Secretary of Education, Back in the around 1980, in the late 80s under Reagan, Bill Bennett uh, argued that uh, the federal student loan program is just an open invitation for colleges to raise fees, and that the the, the, the colleges are the real beneficiary of the program, not people. People end up uh, facing the same burdens because they're paying higher fees than before, and, and so they have to pay off these loans. So uh, I, the evidence pretty much supports that. The colleges did raise their fees enormously in the 1980s and 1990s and the 2000s, up to just a very few years ago. And uh, fees were going up uh, 3% a year more than the overall inflation rate. So they, uh, over the course of 40 years, tripled maybe in real terms, started going up more than people's incomes were going up. So now college was becoming more difficult to finance, even for middle income people, because the fees were going getting so high. And of course, as the fees got high, the colleges had this extra money flowing in, in terms of high tuition monies, fees. And so they expanded their staffs and they started new services they added an enormous amount of administrative bloat, uh, administrative staff on, which has added quite a bit to costs. So all of this has been sort of financed, I think, more than anything else by the availability of relatively accessible and relatively cheap federal money. That's a big part of the problem, I think. And, and can you uh, go a bit, a bit deeper in sort of the Within the federal sort of uh, evolution, like even starting from the GI Bill on, like what are sort of the, the big acts of, of regulation and what were, what were their impacts? Okay, well, the GI Bill came in 1944, and uh, it was a, a very popular piece of legislation, still in a you know revised form, still exists, with a feeling that we ought to provide uh, people who participated in the armed forces with a fringe benefit, I guess you would call it. Deferred compensation would be another way to put it. We ought to provide them uh, resources to, to get a college education. That was followed in the late 50s. We, had, uh, we were in the middle of the Cold War, and we had a scare uh, as a nation. We got almost paranoid about it. Uh, because the Russians launched Sputnik in 1957, the first man-made satellite, and there was a growing feeling that there was uh, America was falling behind scientifically behind the Russians, and uh, therefore we needed to do something about that. So we had a National Defense Education Act, 1957, 1950, uh, yeah, I think it was 57, 58, where we started providing uh, more uh, first loans and also scholarship money, grant money, fellowship money to promote, especially the STEM discipline, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, with money. And then, and as I say, in the 60s, we uh, had the Higher Education Act, which had uh, several dimensions to it. 
but a big part of it was federal uh, financial assistance for the first time to colleges. The next big thing was the creation of the Department of Education, which comes at the end of ni- in 1978. Uh, there was a big expansion of uh, the the loan pro student loan programs then too, and that comes uh, in the late seventies. Uh, and so we created a, for the first time the federal government started getting more and more involved in what colleges and universities were doing. And, uh, uh, until then, it was pretty much a local state responsibility. The federal government got kept collected a little bit of data. But that was about it, and so that the, that happened in the late seventies, and has of course expanded uh, in the science area. We uh, put in uh, rules and regulations at the federal level uh, uh, to protect the integrity of science, uh, and we ha- of course we had expansion of the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health and so forth. So the federal government in 1940 was virtually not involved at all in scientific research at at the university level, uh, became heavily involved uh, as well. So there's a whole bunch of things that have happened. Yeah. Thanks for that overview. I I heard uh, someone joking the other day that if, uh, although I guess he was serious in his intent, that if if the government today was, uh, was, uh, you know, asked to create the Manhattan Project, you know, the way they would do it is, uh, you know, calling, you know, request, you know, calling for sort of RFPs, you know, people submitting a lot of bureaucracy and uh, and it would never get done, basically. Yeah, you know, that's right. A lot of that early stuff was done in, in out of desperation. Yeah. All the World War Two scientific research that Manhattan Project involved universities, uh, uh, one of the most uh, in pioneering things in atomic uh, research and uh, occurred at the University of Chicago uh, in 1942, I think it was. And uh, uh, government fac- uh, university facilities were very important in, and university personnel were very, very important in the Manhattan Project and a uh, whole host of important scientific people came to the United States, Albert Einstein being the most famous, uh, from other countries, some of them fleeing from Nazi Germany, Jewish uh, scientists, and the United States got involved in the 40s. And I I think most people think that was a great thing, and it was done very well, and it was done in a relatively uh, uh, simple way without uh, a huge bureaucracy and a lot of hearings and so forth. And we got the job done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and so before going, uh, you know, digging into where we're going in the future, I want to go back even further. You mentioned uh, within the 1600s of when the first university in the United States, um, you know, today people talk about sort of, you know, what is the purpose of a university? Is it, um, you know, is it career development? Is it sort of this, you know, cultivating citizens, liberal arts, you know, there's sort of, I'm curious how you think about, you know, what is the purpose, purpose or purposes of, of university on sort of a, um, like, what descriptively, how has that evolved over time, if we can go even back to sort of the origin of universities outside of the US? Yeah. Um, and then sort of prescriptively today, you know, what, what should that be? Yeah, that is, that role has changed dramatically. And that's something that I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think that's really a, a striking change. Someone uh, actually added up all the students going to American colleges at the time that the American Revolution took place in uh, 1776. And there were, I want to say, 800 students. I'm I'm rounding that number off a little bit. And of those 800 students, about a quarter of them were becoming ministers a large part of the early emphasis in colleges was on building virtue. We want to have virtuous people, people who believe in the Ten Commandments, people who uh, 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 who are caring towards others. And uh, there was a, 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 a that very strong element of that in early American higher education. And in fact, I would say it was a dominant evidence a, a, a dominant factor up until 
in the middle of the 19th century. And even when I went to college way back in the dark ages of the 1950s, uh, some schools still had chapel where students were mandated to go and uh, uh, both for religious exercises and to hear philosophic presentations and so forth about the role of, of citizens in our society and so on. So that role was a big role at the beginning. It has become much less of a role over time. Someone might argue that it is uh, the, the the decline in that role may have, have hurt our nation. That's you know a subject for another day, maybe. The emphasis on early on was on teaching and research. By the way, in the colonial era, people went to college at 15, 16 years of age. We didn't have high schools in those days. We didn't have very many schools of any kind. Most people were self-educated. Let's see, how old was Thomas Edison when he graduated from the College of William and Mary? It was under 20. He was 19, I think, when he graduated. He, he entered at 16 and left at 19. And uh, by the way, a lot of people went for three years in those days rather than four. So uh, colleges uh, stressed also uh, classical uh, education, including the study of Latin and Greek uh, in the 19th century uh, to a considerable extent. The Morale Act, which is overrated as an important factor, but it was a factor, was a piece of federal legislation that was passed during the Civil War, and it created the land-grant colleges. And the land-grant colleges are important colleges. They're the main flagship state universities in most states in the United States. Uh, there are an awful lot of very important universities that were founded around 1868 or 1870. The University of California uh, would be one, a uh, good example. The University of Illinois would be another one. You know, I could go on and Ohio State, uh, go on and on with a lot of very important universities that were created out of the Morale Act. So the federal government did get involved a little bit. And the idea is that we need to make education more practical and meet vocational needs of our nation, which at that time included partly agriculture uh, and partly sort of engineering. We need to increase engineering emphasis and agricultural emphasis. So we have universities now with the word A&M in them, Texas A&M University. Uh, the A was agriculture and the M was mechanical, or, uh, referring to uh, 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 engineering type advances. So uh, that, that sort of practical emphasis grew in the late 19th century and uh, even more, of course, in the 20th century. What should be the, I presume you think that some of the shift in purpose of higher education, some of it made sense at the time. How should we think about, you know, especially given that it's, it's so federally funded, the, the purpose of, of higher ed today and where should it evolve, if at all? Well, it's a good question. Should higher ed be a, sort of a vocational activity? Is the purpose of higher ed today to provide uh, human capital, uh, skills to people to allow them to do higher order things uh, that are difficult to do without a good bit of educational background. A lot of people think the answer to that is yes. But there, it is also true, uh, and uh, I think Brian Kaplan at uh, George Mason University makes this point probably the strongest of anyone, is it's also true that most of the things that we teach in universities, although they may be very interesting subjects and they may uh, add to a person's uh, well-being in some fashion, they're not really that important in terms of improving skills on jobs, taking courses in history or philosophy uh, or uh, even uh, uh, almost any of the traditional liberal arts disciplines, for example, uh, fine arts disciplines, uh, learning how to paint or learning how to, to act or uh, in a play and so forth, theater and so on. A lot of these things we teach 
uh, that are not areas where we have a strong need for vocational advancement in our nation. The exceptions may be in the area in the sciences and perhaps some of the business disciplines serve uh, well. I, uh, I think you really need to go to count, uh, college to learn how to be an accountant, for example. So the vocational importance of higher ed, I think sometimes gets overstated a little bit. People get with college degrees make a lot more than those without. But the reason they make more isn't so much because of what they learned in college, in most cases, but because they are smarter to begin with. They're more disciplined. They, they worked harder in high school. Uh, they, uh, they're more responsible uh, people. And businesses, uh, employers want to hire people who are responsible, who are going to come to work every day, who are bright, who have initiative and so forth. And college graduates, even those majoring in philosophy and history and subjects like that, are, uh, are, are, are better than those who without a, a college education, by and large, on average. So we pay college graduates in the United States, oh, anywhere from 50 to 75 percent, even 100 percent, more than the typical high school graduate. And part of that is related, has nothing to do with what they learn in college, but more to the, the, the personal characteristics of the people. College is a screening device. It's a way of screening out the best and the brightest, the smartest, the most disciplined, the hardest working from those who are less, uh, fewer of those attributes. Yeah. And, and so... What are your predictions for the future? Like, how, how is, if we're having this conversation in 2030, what do you think the biggest changes will be different, right? You know, if we had the conversation in 2011, I don't know if that much would have been different. You can push back on that, but I don't know how much has changed in the last yeah, 10 years. Yeah, good question. Well, I'm an economist, and economists are the world's worst predictors <laughs> in the future. But... They're also the ones who are expected to predict. Somehow we're supposed to be knowledgeable <laughs> about the future. So I will engage in my predictions. Like, But uh, the Reverend Thomas Malthus in 1798 wrote a book. This is a historical aside. He wrote a book called uh, the Essays on Population, where he predicted people would live in a bare subsistence level from this point on because population would keep growing and the law of diminishing returns would keep output from rising very much. Uh, productivity would fall because there are too many people for too little land and the world was going to go to hell. He said that 200 years ago and it was spectacularly, extraordinarily wrong. So with that by way of background, I will make a prediction. Uh, uh, I think higher ed for the next decade, at least, is in for a good bit of trouble. It's going to have a good bit of challenges. Uh, uh, enrollments have fallen since 2011. That's a factual statement. It was going on before uh, the pandemic. It uh, There's no indication it will change. Uh, there were fewer Americans born in the year... 2019, that is to say last year, than in 2003, the ones who were born in 2003 are the ones who will be entering college about a year, uh, this fall. You know, they're 18 now, and they're entering college this fall. fall. But we have, Americans have stopped having babies for some reason. I, I'll leave it to others to analyze that one. But we have uh, had a very, very low and declining birth rate. We have had uh, uncertainties and restrictions in immigration to the United States. And that's something that's hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. But we're probably not going to have an enormous upsurge in immigration. So enrollments in colleges and universities are not likely to rise in the next decade much in the United States, and they may fall. 
uh, a lot of colleges that are sort of hanging on by the thread are probably going to uh, go out of business. The late Clay Christensen, who was a, a, a Harvard uh, a professor, business professor who was very well known, uh, uh, predicted that, uh, you know, literally thousands of colleges would uh, fold. And uh, it hasn't gone at quite that rate, but it's, it's, it's getting there. Uh, you know, I can, you know, well-known schools, respected schools, mills, College in California just announced its closing. Uh, uh, we've had other uh, schools. Wells College in New York is on the brink and so forth. Schools that are going uh, uh, closing uh, simply because there are not enough kids wanting to attend. So I think the uh, now the politics are hard to predict. And the you know the current administration is very pro higher ed, and they will throw a lot of money into higher ed. They're trying to right now. They already have thrown quite a fair amount. And it may be that, you know, the the, the dynamics will change. I may be wrong. The, the uh, We may have, uh, you know, a liberal, progressive, uh, democratic administrations for the next uh, decade or two that will push higher ed. Uh, and uh, I may be completely wrong. But the trend has been not very encouraging. Uh, and the public, you asked the Gallup polls, uh, surveys and surveys done by uh, other organizations, Pew uh, uh, Trust and so forth, the Pew organization have looked into, you know, what, do, what does the public think about our colleges? How, how uh, confident are they that they're doing a good job? Do they provide good value? They ask questions like that. And there's been a pretty substantial decline in uh, Americans who indicate uh, enthusiasm and support for higher ed. It, uh, I, I don't want to overstate it, but it, the numbers have gone down considerably uh, in the last decade or two as costs have risen uh, and as you know, other things have happened, campus protests and other things probably haven't helped matters any either. So... There's uh, a little less public support for the the enterprise than was case uh, a decade or two ago. Yeah, there's this one stat somewhere, you know, since 1520, only 85 institutions have remained continuously in existence. Around 70 of them are universities. Why are universities, despite, you know, many people thinking they're sort of poor products, why are they so resilient? You know, they last longer than, you know, tech monopolies, right? Like Microsoft. Yeah, or yeah the universe. Yeah. That's, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, in the private, just to extend the, the introduction to the question a little bit in the private sector, you know, Joseph Schumpeter popularized this, talked about creative destruction that in, in the private business sector, nearly every company that is, successful at, at one point becomes unsuccessful at some other point and sometimes goes out of existence. Eastman Kodak was hot 25 years ago. It was a big company. It was a major company. It's essentially bankrupt today. Uh, Exxon, or, uh, well, Exxon, that would I would say that about Exxon, but, but, but there's a whole variety of these companies that I probably shouldn't name them all, but that have just gone broke. But in universities, because the public, because there is third parties paying part of the bills, the third parties are governments, uh, they're rich uh, alumni of these schools, philanthropists who funded these some of these schools, a man named Leland Stanford financed Stanford University, a man named John D. Rockefeller financed the University of Chicago, uh, a man named Johns Hopkins financed uh, Johns Hopkins University in the 19th century. In this century, uh, you know, a lot of the funding has come from government, but we we have people who believe in universities. So the universities are less dependent on their customers. The people who pay the uh, the bills for the services the universities provide. 
they're less dependent on them than the, the people in the uh, in the uh, elsewhere. So the only institutions that remain, you know, I think, well, I, I would say the Catholic Church uh, <laughs> It's has hung around for quite a while, but it too is not a profit-making organization. Uh, In fact, they're losing money like crazy these days, I'm told. Universities are highly dependent on goodwill of the public, highly dependent. And I think they've been a little arrogant, in my opinion, Uh, a little taking this for granted a little too much. And uh, showing less humility than perhaps they should. Uh, And as a consequence, there's been some decline in public support. And I think it's going to lead to more uh, colleges closing as we go on. You know, there are a lot of kids that graduate from these lesser, uh, well-known state colleges and private and also small private colleges uh, who are having a hard time getting jobs that are very good these days. And they're paying a lot to go to these schools, and they got a lot of debt. So the enrollments at the, these colleges are falling like crazy. A large number of smaller state schools in the state of Pennsylvania are being merged together in an attempt to try to keep them from totally failing. Uh, the same thing is going on in many other states as well. Uh, and uh, a lot of, as I say, uh, I think this trend is is not over yet. I think it's going to continue for, I'd be very surprised if fewer than 500 schools close over the next decade. Uh, it may be much more than that. that. That's a pretty healthy number. What would need to be true for sort of universities to have their, like, you know, to lose their sort of like monopoly on, um, I don't even know what to call it, you know, prestige, uh, or is it like, you know, just that it was so obvious, like in what world would government, you know, pull back, you know, their um, sort of entitlements or, or their spending on universities because some politician is trying to, uh, you know, appeal to the public? Like what, what needs to happen, do you think? Well, that, that, that's a good question. I think the universities could lose their appeal, political appeal, uh one way they could lose their university appeal, or their political appeal, of course, is alternative forms of doing what universities purport to do if those alternative forms happen. New technologies. Uh, of course, uh, we, we, a decade ago, we thought the MOOCs, mass online, uh, massive uh, online uh, uh, courses, would be the solution and that we would have offer, you know, by computer uh, the the capacity for students to learn an awful lot for zero or very low cost. Uh, But as we've learned during this pandemic, there are some limits to remote uh, instruction and what it can do. But there are, uh, you know, more and more people who say, we, we ought to think about something other than the four-year degree. These coding academies have been fairly successful, several of them. Uh, you go and you take an intensive tr- uh, course in computer co- coding, which is, takes uh, a lot of uh, effort and all, uh, very bright people to do it. But there are people who can do it, and they can go to these coding academies, and after a year or so of instruction – go out and get a very good job. In some cases, uh, they can uh, the, they can do it for nothing. The, the, if, if the colleges accept them, the coding academies accept them, they'll say, come to our place and we need to get X number of dollars from you. But if you don't have the money, well, we'll enter into an income share agreement with you where at the end of uh, your uh career at the coding academy you'll go out and get a job and you'll give us maybe 10 percent of the your earnings for 10 years or some such term uh to pay off uh, the costs and there are school there are academies that are doing this and so this kind of alternative to traditional higher ed could catch on you know it has to some extent already 
whether it will become bigger and bigger, I don't know. Uh, but I think it's a possibility. Uh, yeah. People like Peter Thiel and, and Brian Kaplan have at least among the sort of intelligentsia, you know, I would say, you know, somewhat exposed higher ed, you know, the small group of people they've exposed it to. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, one, if, if, if that will become more mainstream uh, where people would just sort of like lose, lose faith in it. Um, but two, um, I'm, I'm sure you agree with Thiel and Kaplan on a lot of things. Or is there anything you disagree with them uh, on? I, I, I'm big on both of them. Uh, I've been on TV with Thiel. Uh, once or twice, and uh, Brian and I are buddies. Uh, I I read Kaplan's book, The Case Against uh, Education, and I thought he maybe overstated things a little bit and exaggerated a little bit, and I, you know, I had minor quibbles with it. But education, right now, there is a sheepskin effect. You get this piece of paper, used to be a sheepskin, now it's a piece of paper. You get a piece of paper that is somehow worth a couple hundred thousand dollars or maybe a million dollars to you, because you as a result of having that piece of paper, you can get a job that pays a lot more than if you don't have that piece of paper. And at some point, some people are going to say, that's kind of irrational. There are ways people can be certified for being a certified competency without getting that piece of paper and going to school for four or five years and paying enormous tuition fees and so on. And so we're looking for alternatives. Uh, higher ed also, you know, we have all sorts of barriers to entry. We have the accreditation rules that are crazy, make no sense. The, 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 they're run more or less by the colleges themselves who are trying to keep competitors out. The antitrust people who want to really do something productive ought to go after that. They ought to go after the accreditation agencies and sue them out of existence, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't bother me if they did. You don't have to get a, be accredited to buy a car. You can go out and buy an automobile that's not accredited, but you can't go out and buy a college degree that is not accredited. Uh, and, you know, why is that? And does that make a lot of sense? Maybe we ought to rethink that. Uh, anyway, throw that out for what it's worth. Peter Thiel would agree with me, I think. I love Peter Thiel's idea of let's identify very bright kids who are college-age kids. Most of them may be in college for a year or two. Uh, 19-year-old kids who show uh, a lot of talent, a lot of entrepreneurship, brimming with ideas. Uh, why don't we uh, bribe those people to drop out of college and and, and try their skills uh, as entrepreneurs? That's what Teal's doing. Higher ed has been ad is slow to innovate. It has been resistant to innovation. The, and there are some uh, institutional reasons for it. The institution of tenure probably hasn't helped any. Uh, we have a lot of people who have sort of vested interest in keeping things the way they are. There are no incentives, very modest incentives to try to do things differently. There are very modest incentives to cut costs. There are very modest incentives uh, to innovate in ways that will uh, improve learning uh, in the in. Uh, the, I, I'm not saying they're non-existent, but they're not as strong as they are in the traditional for-profit private sector. And therefore, we have an incentive problem in higher ed. And uh, uh, that's why I kind of like some of these alternative things that are coming up. I, I like coding academies. Uh, 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 I like alternatives to traditional degrees. Uh, I like competition. Uh, com we need competition. Uh, and uh, it's been lacking to some extent. Yeah. The accreditors uh, uh, tend to put a, a cold water on any attempts to do things differently. Uh, you've got to have, uh, we measure things by the inputs used uh, rather than by the outcomes achieved often. 
uh, for example, just to pick one thing. Um, and so therein lies another problem. Yeah, I, you can imagine, you know, like in a dream world, but also like somewhat feasible, like, you know, could you imagine, I guess a few things. One is, you know, governments giving money to students rather than, um, you know, via the schools, like just give the money directly to the students and maybe even like subsidizing, not to the extent that it is subsidized, uh, maybe less so in ac- access, but more so in outcomes, like, pa- you know, job pathways. Um, and then lastly, like, you know, some sort of skin in the game such that the dropout crisis, you know, uh, universities like share, you know, pay some of their ways. So absolutely. 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 And uh, rarely, occasionally we'll get a college professor, president who trying to do some of these things. Uh, Mitch Daniels at Purdue University is a good example. Uh, he hasn't increased tuition in nine years uh, there, uh, which allowing for inflation means that tuition has actually fallen about 15%, and the school is flourishing. And, uh, you know, because he's doing things different. He's income share agreements, uh, uh, skin in the game, absolutely. Uh, colleges... Uh, who flunk out a lot of kids or who have a lot of kids who don't graduate or a lot of kids that don't even make it to the sophomore year. They sh- uh, and particularly colleges who have kids who are uh, defaulting on their federal student loans, those colleges should have to pay a, a price for that, a consequence. And that I mean, maybe they ought to pay part of that uh, debt back that the, that is owed to society. Uh, and if that happened, uh, you would have some big changes in the way colleges behave. And uh, But if you told the people in Washington you wanted to do that, there are some that would agree with you, but you won't get very far in the Congress right now with that proposal, uh, which is, I think, unfortunate. Yeah. What do we do? What is sort of the state of of research, right? There's sort of, you know, teacher, professors. And I hear, like, things are good for administrators, bad for professors or certain professors. You know, there's this, every, there's sort of miserable, there's this challenge between sort of, you know, researching and, and teaching. Why don't you talk about sort of the state of, you know. Research. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the state of research I, I think research is perhaps in less trouble than instruction, but that isn't to say it's not doesn't have its problems. I think the, I wrote I wrote a piece for Forbes six months ago that I don't know I think got a hundred thousand page views or something astronomical number where I sort of said America is losing its lead in science. Uh, uh, the, the Chinese universities are going ahead of us. And uh, we have uh, shown some decline in our support uh, for uh, this pure scientific kind of research and so on. Uh, and so that is, a, you know, an issue. Uh, I think we're crazy on some things we do in the way we finance research. Uh, we have uh, something called overhead money, Uh that we give to schools when they get a federal grant, they, uh, let's say a professor gets a federal grant for a half a million dollars. There usually will be money added on for the institution to cover expenses associated with the buildings and uh, with uh, uh, administrative costs and so forth. And those amounts are negotiated and they run, 30 per, 40% at some schools and 60 or 70% at other schools. It's a crazy system. It makes no sense. Uh, there's a, a number of, of people who've looked at it who, who would agree with that assessment. Uh, so there are some things with in the research area that need to be changed. Uh, but I think we have a lesser problem there. The one problem we have is in the, outside of the area of scientific research, the law of diminishing returns is in effect. That is to say, if you have uh, 500 people researching a problem, some of those people are probably not going to add very much to human knowledge. 
uh, if you have one person or two persons researching it, uh, the contribution made by those one or two people may be fairly significant. Uh, but when you had a 400th and one or 402 or 502 uh, person, you have a problem. I'll give a quick example. In a 20-year period, uh, at the beginning of this century and going back the last few years, the last century, we had 20,000 articles written in scholarly journals on William Shakespeare, roughly 1,000 articles a year. Uh, that is three papers a day written on Shakespeare, Monday through Sunday, holidays included, every eight hours, a new paper on Shakespeare. Now, Shakespeare was a wonderful, insightful, important uh, contributor to our heritage. But how much new do, can we, do we know about Shakespeare or we get? Most of those papers were read by almost no one. Uh, and so we give professors low teaching loads at many universities to write papers that no one reads. No one reads or maybe five people read. Why are we doing this? Wouldn't we be better off allocate telling those professors to teach more and do less of this very marginal research? So some research is, I would argue, uh, uh, of questionable productivity. And I don't want to pick just on the, you know, the professors in English literature, I'm sure the same thing may be true in some of the scientific areas as well. So our research efforts should be reevaluated, I think. But I think we're probably in a little better, better shape in the research area than in the teaching area, uh, where we have a lot of problems. One of which we haven't even talked about is a growing concern that people are afraid to say what they think. Yeah, that's pretty bad in a university. I mean, one thing about a university, they're kind of crazy places. But one of the kind of cool things about them is you can say whatever you think. And, and, and you know, uh, there's a, you know, a, a battle of ideas going on. And that this is how the world advances. And that's been uh, uh, under some attack lately. I and mean, what's most fascinating to me is how you would think that some universities would sort of like stand up to it but it seems that they all sort of move in lockstep that there's like no difference on these issues that from like Stanford or Harvard or Princeton or how do they all, and yet it's all decentralized and yet they all move in the same direction. Yeah. yeah there's a wokish progressive ideology that seems to dominate most American universities. And I guess it's, you're considered, you're not part of the club or part of the respectable intellectual community. If you deviate too much, there, there, uh, you know, there are some exceptions. Um, uh, a lot of us were very, very happy with the University of Chicago, for example, when they adopted something called the Chicago Principles, which more or less says people should be able to say anything they want uh, uh, on campus, pretty much, without, uh, you know, fear. And, uh there have been a number of schools who have adopted that kind of rules, those kind of rules, but there are a number of other schools that have not and uh, have chased off people who have uh, somewhat uh, nonconformist kind of viewpoints. And that scares me a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, Galileo, I mean, we go all the way back to the, the Renaissance was really a revolt against conformity. It yeah. was, uh, that's what it was. I mean, uh, Galileo uh, had a hell of a time existing, uh, and the Renaissance was to allow for the Galileos of the world and the Isaac Newtons of the world and the John Locke's of the world. Uh, to the people who modernized our civilization, it, it, it allowed them to come forth and uh, flourish. And universities are important in that, and we should uh, try to maintain that. And, and when we talk about that importance and how that's evolved over time, you know, John Height, you know, has the idea of you know, truth, you instead of yeah. sort of you know, sort of activism ethos, which, uh, which you know has its purpose, but maybe not in the university or not in all universities. Um, and and like, what is the intellectual sort of foundation for? Is it like John Stuart Mill? Is it you just mentioned John? Like, what is sort of 
the tradition by which it's it's drawing on? I think it's drawing on the Renaissance tradition. It's drawing on Mill, yeah. I think Mill would be a good example uh, of it. it. But it goes back earlier. I I think you find it in the you find it in uh, <laughs> you find it in Thomas Jefferson in the yeah. Declaration of Independence. You find it in uh, John Locke on human understanding. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you find it uh, everywhere. The, whole, the Renaissance and the Reformation uh, w- w- began the modern era, and they were questioning old ideas and old ways of doing things. And uh, the, the tolerance of change grew, and it, you've got to have a tolerance for, for that. And, and, and that happened, it started in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and it's persisted pretty much up to now with little, you know, uh, little uh, quirks uh, of which, you know, I mentioned the McCarthy era was a quirk. Uh, it, it was a aberration. And, um, but I'm worried that the new aberrations of the last uh, decade or so are, are, are equally bad, maybe even worse, and are a little bit frightening. Uh uh, there's new organ the heterodox uh, academy and you know, Jonathan Haidt you mentioned uh, the uh, National Association of Scholars the, uh, there are a variety of organizations that have come up concerned about the lack of uh, academic freedom uh, and the suppression of ideas in the academy and I think these organizations are are doing good work yeah. It's a good place to wrap. I'll, I'll maybe ask one big question in closing, which is, uh, well, sort of, you can answer any one of these two or, or both. If you, if you so one of them That's is a choice question. I like that. Exactly. If you were the president of Harvard, what would you do? And the other is if you were given like, I don't know, $500 million or out of some crazy amount of money to start a new university, you know, what, 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 what could that look like? Well, when you you said I'm, I'm, I can answer that last one maybe, but I want to draw on something you said earlier that I didn't pick up on, which relates to that. And I, that is, I think in public policy, we ought to give more money to students and to uh, consumers than to producers or to colleges. I don't think we ought to give money to colleges, maybe. Maybe we ought to give the money to the students and let them, uh, uh, you know, choose where they want to go to school, and the colleges can charge whatever they want if they if they choose. And uh, we, at least in public education, we ought to be doing much more of uh, reward. Of it's like a voucher system in uh, 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 K through twelve schools. We ought to give the money to the kids and not to the uh, to the institutions, because the institutions uh, tend to have vested interests who uh, tend to misuse the uh, and are highly inefficient. So I think that that's the case. Uh, I, gosh, I, I wouldn't even know what to do if I were president of Harvard. I think the first thing I would do is resign. It, it's a great place, and there are a lot of places like it that are great. But you, I wonder, really, Harvard has $45 billion in endowment for 20,000 students. That's over $2 million a student. Uh, if you invested two, uh, those dollars at 4% or 5%, you can have about $100,000 a year coming in income for each student that goes to those places. So these schools are obscenely rich. And uh, there's an issue of equity and fairness. And should we give people tax deductions to give more money to the Harvards of the world? I think a case could be made we shouldn't. Maybe we should tax endowments, which we are to a very minor extent already uh, for very wealthy schools. Uh, Maybe we need to equalize things a bit more uh, that way. Uh, The people on the left should be in favor of that, but they all went to Harvard, so they're against it. Uh, you know, they don't want to talk against their alma mater. I say they all went to Harvard. They all went to, many of them went to elite schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, so on. And uh, anyway, 
I've talked enough, my friend. Uh, good luck to you, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, this has been a, this has been a great episode. It was it was great to meet you. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I, when you have the next book out, let's let's do another one. I, I love look forward to. to it. Uh, thanks, uh, Eric, so much for inviting me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.